We uh, have you join me at the Gospel of John, chapter 12, this morning. The Gospel of John and the 12th chapter, enjoyed the music. Today's a full day. Leah Seely Baby Shower. I got it right this time. Baby Shower at 3 o'clock this afternoon. All the ladies know about that. And um, so if you'll be there for that, that'd be a real blessing. Then prayer meeting at 5.30, the service at 6 o'clock tonight. And then right after the service, we're going to take an offering. Uh, we'll just put some plates down here. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I, I, some of you may have seen this, maybe seen it on the news. Friday evening, um, Andrew and Megan's neighbor, next door neighbor, their house literally blew up and uh, burned out and just gutted everything. And uh, Megan had been witnessing to her, trying to get her to come to church. And um, then this happens, and she literally lost everything except the clothes on her back. Everything. House, uh, she didn't own the house, she was renting the house. There was no insurance on the house, it's a total loss. And so everything, everything is totally gone. Um, she had three dogs, um, three dogs, and she loved those dogs. She really did. And uh, when, when the house filled up with smoke, those dogs ran under the bed and uh, couldn't get them out. And so lost the dogs, lost everything. Um, so we were there. Andrew was there when it happened. And I pulled up right after that and talked to the fire chief and what have you and uh, offered some assistance. And I know that a lot of you ladies have already said you're going to give Megan some stuff to try to help her. Um, American Red Cross, I think, gives you $640 when that happens. It's not really going to replace everything, to be honest with you. But everything helps. Here's, here's what we're going to do after the service. When we dismiss, we'll, we'll, we'll put two offering plates right down here. And if you have cash, we're not going to run it through anything. But if you have some cash, you'd like to give something just to help this lady that has never been to our church. She may never come to our church, but she just lost everything. All right. And so if you'd like to help, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Whatever comes in, we'll give to Andrew and Megan and they can use that to help her go whatever that they whatever that she needs and we'll just we'll just we'll just do it that way if you don't trust that then don't give anything but that's what we're going to do i think they're pretty honest i've known them for a long time <laughs> megan especially and andrew not so much but um <laughs> but but anyway that's that's what we'll do so if you want to help and if we could you know take some money and, and just um just try to show the love of christ during a very tragic, tragic time, I think that'd be a real blessing. All right. The Gospel of John chapter 12. The Gospel of John chapter 12. And uh, we are making our way through this Gospel on Sunday morning. So John chapter 12 and verse number 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Boy, that's not, you can't say that about a whole lot of people. He had been dead, huh? There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and 
bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But when the chief priests consulted, they, that they might put Lazarus also to death. And I'm not going to preach on that verse, but that is just astounding, isn't it? Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. This chapter brings us to within one week of what is often called the Passion of Christ. The opening verse places us six days before the Passover, which was the day that Jesus would be crucified. I personally believe that Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday. Wednesday, and we can debate that another time. And so this being six days before, then this event would take place on the Thursday before the crucifixion. The actual crucifixion is not told until John chapter 19. And so John spends a great amount of material in the events leading up to the cross of Christ. As you know, every gospel is very selective in the material that is chosen for that particular gospel, especially so at this particular scene. And so John writing after the other three gospels have been written, he leaves out a lot of the material and details of the story that the other three have already written. He has covered the first three and a half years ministry of the Lord Jesus in 11 chapters. Now he's going to take the next 10 chapters and cover the last week of the ministry of Christ. And when we approach this, I don't have to tell you what holy ground that we are walking on when we consider the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian, then you know the importance of what is taking place or about to take place in these chapters. This is the gospel. And from the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, his life and ministry on earth has been leading up to this particular moment. Now, to get our bearing and to be able to follow the chronology, I want us to back up just for a few days. And I want us to walk into the scene to give us an understanding of what's happening in this particular incident. And to do that, I want you to back up to chapter 11 and look at verse 54. Well, the Bible says this is right after uh, the, the raising of Lazarus. And we talked last week about Caiaphas and, 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 and their enmity against the Lord Jesus. So in this, verse 54, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness and to a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. The raising of Lazarus in the village of Bethany has created quite a stir in Jerusalem. Uh, many now believe in Jesus, which has threatened the power structure of the religious elites. They've put the word out that if you have a sighting of him, you need to notify the authorities so we can arrest him for crimes against the nation. 
And we're told that Jesus and his disciples depart to a city of Ephraim and they depart for safety reasons. It is not that Jesus is afraid of being killed. It is that he is determined that he's going to do it on God's timetable and not on theirs. And so there is a little bit of an interlude between the raising of Lazarus from the dead to where we get to in John chapter 12. It could have been a few days. It could have been even a few weeks. And if you're interested in following the chronology, then if you'll look at Luke 17, 18, and 19 sometime, Bible commentators struggle as to where to place that in the harmony of the Gospels. It probably belongs right here in this interlude, these couple of days or these couple of weeks. But now Jesus knows that the Passover is approaching and he re-enters into Bethany. Remember, Bethany is only about two miles east of Jerusalem and so it is very close proximity to the center of hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can imagine the disciples were none too happy to be going back to Bethany because it's real close to the most dangerous place on earth that they could go to. In fact, back in chapter 11, in verse number 8, when, when uh, Jesus had gotten the message that Lazarus was sick and the sisters were calling him, the disciples didn't want to go at that time because in John 11, in verse number 8, his disciples say to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee and goest thou thither again. Not, 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 we really should not be going back to that area because it is dangerous. But I submit to you that Jesus goes back there because it is dangerous, because they are placing threats upon his life. And he comes to Bethlehem after this brief interlude and people are still talking about this particular miracle. And the city of Jerusalem is beginning to fill up with pilgrims coming from all over the nation to observe the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they're, they're not sure, but some are pretty sure that I wonder if Jesus is going to make an appearance during this time. He's not in town, but he is on the lips of everybody there. What do you think? Do you think that Jesus is going to show this time? So Jesus comes back to Bethany, and there is this scene where he is in the house eating supper with his disciples. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there, so I would forgive you if you believe that they are in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But I don't believe they are. I believe they're in the house of Simon the leper. Now, when you read Matthew and Mark and you read Luke, they, they, you, you try to put them together. Some believe that there were two events. I actually believe that there was only one event. And if you read Matthew 26, it tells you that he was in the house of Simon the leper. I believe that this is what happens in John chapter 12. They were in the house of Simon the leper. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there in the house. Now, the Bible says nothing about Simon the leper. We don't know anything about him. But here's what I, I, I do know, is that if he is in the house of Simon the leper, Simon cannot still be a leper. Because the law says he has to be isolated. So, so, so I'm going to say that it was Simon who had been a leper. And in that day, there was only one cure for a leper. That would be Jesus. So I'm going to put two and two together. When you preach it, you can preach it your own way. I'm going to put two and two together. And I'm going to say that Simon had been a leper. Somehow it's come in contact with Jesus. Jesus has healed him. He now holds a supper in his house in appreciation, in gratitude. Jesus and his disciples, and at least Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. 
And on this particular event, all the men are reclining around the table having supper. They would not be seated in chairs like we are, but the table would actually be on the ground or very close to the ground. And, and the men would be reclining. They would be seated on the floor and reclining on cushions or pillows, and they would be eating in that manner. And Mary comes to Jesus, and she takes this box of ointment or perfume, if you please, and she breaks it and takes the ointment and she pours it over the feet of Jesus. I don't think that she does this without him knowing about it. I, I don't think that she snuck up on him and, and all of a sudden what was happening, I, I think that she came before him and bowed before his feet and took this ointment and performed this act of love. And everybody sees it. And we know that Judas Iscariot sees it because he has to voice his disapproval. So, so self-righteous, so hypocritical that, that really this is such extravagant love that it would have been better if you would have sold the perfume and have given the money to the poor. By the way, it's interesting that when you read Matthew's account, it says that all the disciples said, why wasn't it given to the poor? Judas here, all the disciples said, I think that Judas spoke up and then them being emboldened by what Judas said, they chimed in with their criticism. And it just goes to show how far a critical spirit can spread. You get one person griping, after a while you got everybody griping. And so the narrative really focuses in on, on Mary and Judas Iscariot. That's interesting to me because all through the book of John, here's what we've seen, belief and unbelief side by side. And here is a case of extreme belief and extreme unbelief. What you have in this room is you have a woman who loves Jesus and you have a man who hates Jesus. You have belief and unbelief. You have worship and you have blasphemy. Here is a woman who loves him and a disciple who rejects him. A daughter of God and a son of Satan. And I will say to you this morning that you're either for him or you are against him, but there is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. And these two attitudes are, are demonstrated in Mary and in Judas. Can I say this morning that your decision for or against Christ is an extreme decision? Here's what I mean by that. To believe in him is so extreme that it will grant you eternal life. To not believe in him is so extreme that it will damn your soul to hell for all of eternity. And when men accept Jesus Christ, their hearts will be filled with so much worship and adoration that they are willing to give him everything. That's Mary. But when men reject Jesus Christ, their hearts become so filled with hatred and vitriol, and that is Judas Iscariot. So let's walk through the scene quickly, and I'm going to borrow from Matthew's account and John's and put them together. And I want you to see three things about Christ's death in this passage, in this story. The first thing I want you to notice is how Christ's death is predetermined by God. I want you to hold your finger here, and I want you to go to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to borrow something from his account, because he makes a very important point in how he tells the story. 
When Matthew tells this story, he tells it as a flashback scene. Here's what I mean by that. In Matthew chapter 26, we are two days before the Passover. Two days. But when John tells the story, it is six days before the Passover. So John, Mark Matthew has moved forward into the narrative. He gets to two days before the Passover, and he does a flashback scene to four days earlier. When, did you follow that? Four days earlier, he gives it as a flashback scene. Look at Matthew 26 and verse 1. Came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. The Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the place of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the Lord, he's now going to flash back to something that happened four days earlier. Now, now watch this. Jesus is meeting with his disciples somewhere in Jerusalem. And while he's meeting with his disciples, telling them what's getting ready to happen, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, they're all meeting somewhere else, trying to figure out how they're going to get rid of Jesus. He has rebuked them. He has challenged their authority. He has upset their money-making scheme. He has called them names, and they are upset. His popularity is rising among the people because of the raising of Lazarus. They have got to do something. It is time to quit talking. It is time to take action. So Caiaphas, the high priest, he calls for a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And don't let the title high priest fool you because you would think he's a holy man. He is a very unholy man. Uh, he, he, he is one of the most conniving, wicked, evil men in the Gospels. And every time Caiaphas shows up in the Gospel, he's hating the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what you have. You, you have Caiaphas in the court of the Sanhedrin, these 71 influential Jewish leaders, self-important men, greedy men, powerful men, all under the guise of religion. And they have an emergency meeting. How are we going to get rid of this Jesus? But here's the problem. It's his popularity among the people. So here's what they say. They say, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. We've determined that we're going to kill him, but we've got to be careful how we go about doing it. Because he's very popular with the common people. He's coming in Jerusalem. They're lining the streets with palm branches and clothes saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. So we've got to be smart about this. His disciples are always with him. He's always surrounded by people. So we've got to be subtle as to how we are going to do this. For the Lord's time of Passover, there are literally hundreds of thousands of Jews that are thronging in Jerusalem at this time. The last thing that they want is a riot. Because if they have a riot, here come the Romans, going to put it down. We could lose our place. We've read that. So we got to be careful how we do it. So I want you to notice this. This, this. this is good. Look at verse 5. They said, not on the feast day. Do you know what feast day they're talking about? They're talking about Passover. Passover is getting ready to happen in two days. Passover also is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days. 
So, so we're not going to do it on the feast day because there's too many people here. It, 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 we, we can't do it at this time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait until the feast day is over. We've determined that we're going to kill him. He's, he's got to die. But we're not going to do it on the feast day because that's an inconvenient time for us. And since they want to do this very subtly, I don't think that they want to do it by crucifixion. They have not said how they want him to die. Just that we want him to die. Crucifixion is the most public at, of, of all. I'm going to guess that they probably want to stone him for blasphemy. We're going to kill him, but we're going to do it our way and in our time. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Huh? Now watch the tension here. Look at verse 1. Came to pass. Jesus had finished all these sayings. He said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is to be betrayed to be crucified. Here's what he's telling them. I'm getting ready to die, but it will not be as a murderer or as a victim. It is not going to be an accident. It's not going to be a tragedy. I came to this earth to give my life as a ransom for many, and I'm about to do that. What has been foreordained before the foundations of the world was laid is getting ready to happen. What has been prophesied by all the Old Testament prophets is getting ready to take place. He has told them several times several times that I am going to die. So understand that when we read of the crucifixion, that is not the tragic end. It is a glorious beginning is what it was. And in verse number two, he knew when he would die. Do you see that? And the feast of Passover. Now again, I'm not going into chronology. I believe that Jesus was crucified on a Wednesday. On that particular year, Wednesday was the Passover. He's the Passover lamb is what he is. He, he certainly was not crucified on a Friday. And the reason why I know that is because you can't get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday morning. The Catholics invented that. They're not only bad at theology, they're bad at math too, all right? It just does not fit. He knew when he would die. He knew how he would die. The Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Crucified. I just want you to dwell on that. His death was not an accident. Death is not something that happened to him. It is something that he did to death. Usually death is the master. But in this case, death is the servant. Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 2. Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. And the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Verse 5. They said, not on the feast day. <laughs> Do you see the tension between those two plans right there? That God has planned his death and the Jewish Sanhedrin, they are planning it, but the plans are not the same. Do you see that? Huh? God has made a plan. They have come up with a plan and the plans clash. 
Jesus said it would be by crucifixion. They want it to be secret. What Jesus said would happen is exactly what God has determined would happen. And it's almost as if the gospel writers have set those two plans next to each other for you to feel the tension in the room. He is not going to be a victim of the Sanhedrin. He is going to be the sacrifice of the Father. The religious elites want him dead. They think they are in control, but they have no control at all. His death is predetermined by God. But then come back to John 12, and I want you to see how his death is prepared for by Mary. We come back to Simon's house. We, we re-enter the house, and as soon as you walk into the house, there is this, there is this strong fragrance. There is this aroma that, that hits you. It, 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 it smells like somebody has poured out a bottle of perfume, and it's just filled the house. There's commotion in the dining room, and so we walk in there, see what's happening, and, and we come across this particular scene. Here's what Mary has done. She had taken this alabaster box, this thing of perfume, and she has broken it. Now, it says that she has broken it. I don't know that she broke it and there's glass everywhere. There was probably a seal on it. She'd broken it to be able to pour it out. And she has taken it and she has poured it out and now she is wiping it up with her hair. Mark says that this box of spikenard was very expensive, 300 pence, which was an average man's wages for a year. John says she poured it on his feet. Matthew says she poured it on his head. I'm thinking that she poured it on his head and it flowed down to his feet and now she's taken her hair and she is wiping that up. But notice something that Jesus says in chapter 12 and verse 7. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. She has paid more attention to his announcements about death and resurrection than the disciples have. She understands more than they understand. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. Her heart is full of love and Worship and adoration. And her display of love is extravagant. It is out the top. Somebody might say, it, it, it is too much. It, it's, it, it's, it's too extravagant. It's too emotional. It, it is too much. In fact, maybe even you will say, yeah, it seems a little, little extreme. Because really, why didn't she just take a little bit out and dab it on his feet? Just, just dab a little bit here. I mean, that, that would be enough. But it looks like that she has gotten a little out of control. I would to God that he'd let some of us have our hearts so full of love and worship that you got out of control. I'd rather be Mary that could not restrain herself than the disciples who criticized her because she couldn't restrain herself. Wouldn't it be so good if you so fell in love with Jesus and so felt him in your heart that you could not be restrained? Someone said, well, well, brother, you know, wild, you ain't got no worry about wildfire. Huh? Yeah, you have no worry about getting out of bounds and being a Baptocostal and all that. You, you ain't got no worry about that. Because really, really, most of us worship with restraint. 
What can I afford to give? What, what, can I, what can I give that won't cost me anything? We see a need, we give an offering to meet the need, but, but make sure that that offering does not crimp my style, it does not hinder my lifestyle in any way. Don't, don't die on me. I'm not done yet. Worshiping without restraint. There are people who get blessed and you can't hold them back. Have you ever, I'll just, I'll just stop here for just a minute, all right? Have you ever had a hallelujah that you could not keep in? Huh? It ain't even a shouting type, but there's every once in a while. I mean, even if you're from the north. Huh? Good, well, good to have some New Yorkers with us this morning, huh? I mean, even if you are a Yankee, because God saves Yankees too, we know that. But have you ever have you ever just had a hallelujah bubbling up and you just you just you just could not keep it in? Huh? I have, I have. I know, I know that sometimes there are shows of flesh and, and, and I understand that, but that's not our danger. Our danger is restraint in worship. You know what I believe the Lord wants? I believe He wants you just to pour it all out. Just pour it all out in His feet. Here's what we do. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Look at it. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. Look back at verse 4. Then says one of his disciples, Jesus, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Well, that's real pragmatic. See how practical that is? Huh? Yeah. We could have given that money to the poor. I mean, we, we could have started a program and we could have had a benevolence fund. And, well, what we need to do, we just need to be about ministry. Which, by the way, in the service, we're going to take an offering for somebody that's poor right now. But, 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 but it's not a bad suggestion. Let's just let's start a ministry and let's give money to the poor and let's have a program. And here's what Jesus said about that. He said, let her alone, verse 7, against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Jesus is not saying we shouldn't give to the poor. Here's what Jesus is saying. The spiritual is more important than the social. There's some people that want to turn the church into a social organization. Be all about charity and philanthropy, and we give a lot of money away and we'll continue to do so. But the primary need is spiritual. There are some things that are more important. There are, there are some things that are important. There are some things that are imperative, and the spiritual is more important than the social. Now notice what he says. Let her alone. I guess the day of my burying has she kept this. Here's what she's doing. She is testifying that she knew he was going to die. And she was anointing his body for burial ahead of time as a testimony to what she believed. Most commentators think that this perfume was what they would anoint bodies with before burial. They didn't embalm. So they would pour perfume ointment on these bodies to try to keep the stench down for a while. She's been sitting at the feet of Jesus. She has been paying attention. She's listening. She has better insights than the disciples do. And she expresses her adoration and testifies she believes he's going to die.
But then I want you to notice thirdly, how that Jesus' death is prearranged by Judas. Look at verse 4. Then says one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Every time that Judas is mentioned, he's identified as the one who betrayed Jesus. His epitaph is written before he died. He would be a traitor to Jesus. And I think that Judas Iscariot cast his lot in with the Lord Jesus because of his promises of a kingdom. And he probably saw this as his path to power and wealth and a position in the kingdom. But it became clear to him that it was not the kind of kingdom he had hoped for. And while everybody's growing to love Christ more, he's growing to hate Christ even more. He becomes bitter and angry and greedy. And when the idea of a kingdom becomes less likely to him, he's filled with hatred and he's filled with malice. And, 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 and when he decides to turn Jesus over to the authorities and, uh, for a price, he has to deny all the miracles he's, he's seen performed. He has to forget all the teachings that he's seen, everything that he has heard, every claim that Jesus has made, he has to reject all of that. He has walked with Jesus for three years and he ends with no faith in him at all. None. And, and flip back to Matthew 26. Let me, let me show you something here. Look, flip back to it. Matthew 26 and look at verse number 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests. And said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now remember, watch this. The scene in Bethany in Matthew has taken place four days earlier. Then, in verse 14, notice it. Then, then, after this scene takes place, then is when he goes to the Sanhedrin to do his deal with the devil. It is now that he leaves this group, he goes to the Pharisees, and says, make a deal with me for betraying Christ. What sealed the deal for him is the extravagant worship of Mary. When the Lord rebuked those disciples for, for criticizing Mary, Judas is part of that group. And when Judas slips out and he does his dastardly deed, so for four days, he's been with this group, but he's been plotting in his heart how I'm going to betray him. How am I going to get him away from the crowds? The Bible says from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And Jesus knew, and by the way, the price is 30 pieces of silver. May interest you know, Exodus 21, that's the price of a slave. If you had an animal that killed a slave, 30 pieces of silver, that was the price that you paid. He thinks that the perfume is more important than Jesus. In fact, look at this. Look, 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 look at this. Look at John 12 and verse 5. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? That's the first words spoken by Judas Iscariot in the Bible. First words he speaks. Look at Matthew 26. Look at Matthew 26. Look at verse 15. He said to them, What will you give me? I'll deliver him unto you. That's fatal words spoken by Judas. Look at Matthew 27 and verse 4. Matthew 27 and verse 4. He says, I've sinned and that I betrayed the innocent blood. That's the final words of Judas Iscariot. That's everything that Judas Iscariot says in the Bible. Now come back to this. I'm almost done. Look, come back to John 12. Watch this. Look in verse 6. Or verse 5. 
Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? If he is so concerned with the poor, then why didn't he give them some of his own money? But what he wants to do is he wants to tell someone else what to do with their possessions. It's classic socialism. It's communism is what it is. And behind every socialist agenda, there's a thief. You think of how many programs in our country, how many dollars that are blown in the name of the poor. And think of how much goes missing from those programs. Social, all these wealth distribution programs, there is a thief behind it is what there is. If Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, Democrat and Republican, so you can get mad if you're either one of them, if Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell really cared about all the illegal immigrants, then house them in your house. Why don't you give some of your money to take care of them? It is the essence of Judas Iscariot. You, you should have given your money to the poor instead of Jesus. The people who are always championing the poor are always self-important people that want you to give your money. What is it any of Judas Iscariot's business what Mary does with what she owns? Huh? Are we okay? What, what, what is it any of her, his business? But, 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 but it's her money, but a true socialist, he wants to spend your money. We give to the poor. We have people in need, but we don't give to them in place of giving to Jesus. Social programs are good and important. But they're not as important as pouring out your love and sacrifice to the Lord. And you can be so wrapped up in money, yours or somebody else's, that you never poured out for Jesus. And here's what Mary did. She took the most valuable thing that she had and she spent it on Jesus. She said, Jesus is more valuable than anything that I own. And I think if you set those two aside, you could look at them and you're going to ask, which one am I more like? What is most valuable to me? Are you more like Judas Iscariot or are you more like Mary? The best thing you can do with your life is to pour it all out at Jesus' feet. Why, why, not, why not give what is costly to you? Because he's worth any gift that you can give him. The world says that it is a waste. I'll tell you what's a waste is for you to spend it on yourself. Two people, two people. One gave it all and one gave nothing. Do you know which one died with regret? The one who gave nothing. Mary pours all of her love out at any cost. Judas pours out his hatred at any price. Now the beauty of Mary's love is set against the ugliness of Judas's hate. Mary openly worshipped Judas secretly betrayed. Mary will always be remembered for one act of devotion. Judas Iscariot will always be remembered for one act of betrayal. Mary didn't care anything about what it cost to worship Christ. Judas is angry at what it costs to worship Christ. And it all boils down, what do you think of Jesus? Judas didn't value him at all. 
Mary valued him above everything. Judas said he's worth the price of a slave. Mary said he's worth my most valued possession. And in this opening scene, before we get to the crucifixion, but in this opening scene of Passion Week, you see the different hearts and responses to the Lord Jesus. Here's the heart of Christ. I'm going to die in two days. Dying for the sins of mankind on my Father's timetable. The time is near. You see the heart of chief priest. We're going to kill him. We've got to find a convenient time. Here's the heart of Mary. I love him. And the most expensive thing that I have is not too expensive to pour out to him. Here's the heart of Judas. He means nothing to me. If I can sell him for 30 pieces of silver, that's exactly what I'll do. Are you more Mary or are you more Judas? Maybe not outright betrayal, but a heart full of greed and self-interest. Certainly not worship. Certainly not devotion. No relationship. You've walked in close proximity for years and have absolutely no faith in him. Or do you ever become so overwhelmed with Christ that there is no restraint? I'll give anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. Are you Mary? Or are you more like Judas? Our heads are bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. A room full of love and hate. And it could be that in this room, there is love and there is hate, either for or against. Are you more like Mary that says, I give it all to him? Or are you more like Judas Iscariot, always self-interest, self-worth? Mm -hmm.